0: Psychedelics are powerful psychoactive substances that exist throughout the natural world, and while they may hold significant potential for our understanding of the mind, they remain illegal in many countries, and ever since the 1960s have been a continued subject of controversy, intrigue and misinformation. In recent years, however, some of the initial hysteria around these substances has died down, and a new generation of scientists has begun returning to this area, and attempting to understand these mysterious compounds, their potential psychotherapeutic value, what they might tell us about the deep structure of our minds, and, according to some, including my guest today, what they might tell us about the nature of reality. Hi everyone, welcome back to Waking Cosmos, a philosophy podcast hosted by me, Adrian Nelson, focusing on the mystery of consciousness and its place in reality. Today I'm joined by the psychologist David Luke, who is one of a small number of researchers who are legally studying psychedelics here in the UK. One of the things that really stands out to me about David, which I really admire, is that while he is taking this very scientific approach to understanding psychedelics, He keeps an open mind about what the psychedelic state might bring us into contact with. As a past president of the Parapsychological Association, David is also quite uniquely placed to discuss some of the stranger, apparently extended mind phenomena associated with the psychedelic experience, such as perceived cases of telepathy and precognition, and he's actually been involved in a number of experiments in this area. I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. Just before we begin, I want to take a moment to thank those of you who are supporting the podcast on Patreon. Without your help, none of this would exist, and so thank you. I really appreciate you seeing some value in what I'm doing. It really means a lot. For those of you who are enjoying the podcast but are not yet supporting it, I do still have quite a way to go before this becomes something that I can afford to do full-time, which is something that I would love to be able to do. So if you would like to support me on this project and help me reach my goal of sustainability, the link to my Patreon page is in the description. And of course, all Patreon supporters get early access to the podcast as soon as I finish editing it. Thank you. Okay, without further delay, I give you the psychologist David Luke. Hi, David. Thank you for joining me for this conversation. How are you doing?
1: Hi, Adrian. Yes, I'm pretty good. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me on the show.
0: Really great to have you and I have to say I really admire your open-minded approach to this subject of psychedelics and it's very refreshing and interesting to hear you talk about this subject. Uh, Today we are going to talk about your research with psychedelics. So perhaps I should start off by asking you what it is about these substances that you find so interesting and important to explore. Um, So
1: they are, I mean, extraordinary tools for altering one's consciousness and it's, it's the kind of uh, experiences and phenomena that comes out of those psychedelic experiences that I'm, I'm most intrigued by what we might call the transpersonal experiences or exceptional human experiences and uh, what we can learn uh, about the nature of reality and the nature of consciousness from exploring those kinds of experiences in particular but i am interested in all alt states of consciousness just my particular uh, Avenue, uh, I'm looking down, is is primarily psychedelic.
0: Hmm. To me, what seems so initially interesting and potentially valuable about psychedelics is that they essentially bring the usually unconscious mind into consciousness. And so just as a tool in that capacity, there seems to be like a huge amount of potential for understanding the deep structure of our minds and how they're organized, especially since... You know, so much of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis essentially is based around teasing out unconscious material that people need to work through and process.
1: Yeah, very much so. Freud or Jung, I can't remember which one, said that dreams are the, the royal road to the unconscious. Then, you know, psychedelics are are a kind of an imperial highway or something. I mean, obviously, you have to, first of all, believe in the nature of the unconscious, not just discredit it as somehow being total nonsense, uh, which I think is a is a somewhat kind of myopic view, but I think yeah certainly what lurks within our unconscious is of huge potential, not just within the therapeutic context but also for a personal development context in terms of what we can learn about ourselves and uh, who we are and the kind of myth stories that guide us and make us uh, do all the things that we do do uh, but it 's also a rich seam of accessing. Um, states which may be conducive to creativity and, and problem solving as well um, so there's there's a lot to kind of to mine and to learn and to to gain from exploring the unconscious through altered states be it psychedelic or dreams or whatever really so i happen to agree with you
0: <laughs> good <laughs> Yeah, I have always found it surprising that Jung, as far as I know, never really wrote very much about psychedelics, especially given how fascinating he, fascinated he was with uh, the unconscious. But And maybe maybe that just wasn't appropriate at the time.
1: Yeah, I think he, his response was to people had invited him to take psychedelics. And he was kind of, you know, in his older years, um, when psychedelics started appearing on the scene. He said he had enough work to do trying to un- understand uh, the mind through dreams and that he, he you know, he had a lifetime of work there. So he didn't want to just kind of open up uh, the Pandora's box any further and, and then delve into psychedelics as well.
0: How do researchers like you think about these very highly meaningful and even mystical experiences that people have with psychedelics? Is it possible, do you think, to talk about mystical experiences in a scientific way?
1: Yes, I think it's possible to talk about anything in a, in, a, in a scientific way. It kind of depends on your your prior assumptions and, and uh, how you approach the, the subject matter. Obviously, we're delving into the realms of subjective experience, which, you know, was taboo within the realms of, of psychology for, for many, many years and, and is now coming back into vogue and uh, particularly through the lens of neuroscience. And I think it is. Possible and and valuable to consider the mystical experience and other subjective experiences. Um, Trying to quantify it is difficult. Trying to understand it is probably more difficult from a a scientific perspective, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at it really. And uh, particularly what is quite salient as well is what we're finding from a lot of the the psychedelic clinical research is that those people who, who tend to have mystical experiences during their psychedelic trips uh, are those that have better clinical outcomes. So they are more likely to give up smoking if it's a uh, if it's a nicotine addiction study, or they're more likely to uh, have a, a more profound reduction in their fear of death and consequently have reduced depression, anxiety, and also need for medication as they near the end of life if they have a terminal illness or something like that. So the mystical experience is, is not only just a kind of A scientific enigma that kind of deserves exploring but it also has uh, clinical benefit it would seem so we should be looking to understand it as much as we can from a scientific perspective.
0: So in terms of seeing some of these potential positive outcomes from taking psychedelics how important is it to have a a mystical experience because it doesn't always happen right?
1: No no it doesn't always happen Uh, and um the kind of mystical experience can be, you know, uh, teased out some more through appropriate set and setting as as we discovered, you know, in various research over the years, that if you take people who are already spiritual practitioners, and you, you put them in a conducive environment, they they probably have a better chance of having a mystical experience. But its benefits are, are apparent in that it increases kind of uh, clinical outcomes, uh, like positive clinical outcomes. But also, I think it's possible to have beneficial psychedelic experiences, which can help with, you know, depression, anxiety, or addictions, or end of life uh, anxiety, whatever it may be, without having a mystical experience. But it seems that uh, those who do greatly benefit from it. So, the the how do we understand that from a scientific perspective is a curious notion. It, it suggests to me that it's something far more than just a a pharmacological action in the brain uh, which a a lot of my neuroscientific colleagues want to kind of try and understand you know the underlying chemical mechanisms and neurobiological mechanisms but uh, that the the psychological content of your experience bears a, a great relationship to your kind of outcome suggests that the psychological factors are also quite key especially when issues around set and setting ie what's your psychological framework when you come to the situation and, and what's the context in which you take them they also seem to have an effect on the kind of experience you have so it's it, it's it really is a, a kind of at the crossroads a fusion of of pharmacology and psychology uh and of course being a psychologist i'm more interested in the, the psychological uh, components of that
0: yeah And so people do have these occasionally very enlightening experiences through these substances. I suppose the question that we're left with is does that actually lead to more enlightened behaviour after the experience in terms of their ethics and their outlook on the world?
1: So some of the research, particularly that coming out of uh, John Hopkins University, where they've been particularly engaged with these kinds of questions, they did find kind of positive uh, changes to one's personality following a, a mystical experience, uh, uh, more so than compared to those who didn't have a what they decided was a full-blown mystical experience. So um, they found that uh, basically people were just uh, nicer or easier to get along with, or, or more positive or more productive. And that wasn't just gauged by the people themselves, but also by their their family and their peers and their work colleagues, uh, who were invited to kind of give independent ratings of of the person's kind of general personality after the experience. And we found that that was kind of very heavily related to the, the occasion of the mystical experience. Uh, so the, there would seem to be you know evidence to suggest that having one of these experiences really does uh, change you or have benefits to the personality. For instance, openness to experience is, is one of these wonderful psychological constructs related to uh, how interested you are to engage in in kind of uh, cultural activities or more likely to try novel uh, things, food or uh, entertainments or whatever, and is also strongly linked to creativity, that was seen to increase uh, quite significantly among those who'd had a a mystical experience. Uh, And it used to be thought that, well, it is kind of, generally considered that beyond the age of 30 we don't see huge shifts in people's personality except for in extremely life-changing situations like uh, marriage uh, or divorce or the death of a spouse and things like that which are usually positive for women and negative for men for some unknown reason Uh, but we do see these uh, dramatic changes in in openness to experience following uh, mystical experiences through psychedelics. Um, so it has it has the capacity to to make profound changes in people's personality at a point where changes in personality don't tend to occur.
0: That's fascinating. I want to um, sort of get into eventually the ways that you think about the psychedelic experience and how it might help us to think about consciousness, maybe. But I think. Um, Maybe we should start out by stating just for the record that psychedelics in this country are, of course, illegal. So we can't strictly advocate that people seek out these experiences and not necessarily just for legal reasons. There is some risk of sustaining psychological trauma when we consume these substances, especially if we're not prepared entirely for what might happen. So they're not risk free. And yet there does seem to be a certain degree of misplaced fear perhaps around psychedelics as well so david how have you gotten around the laws in order to study these substances legally uh well i don't
1: try to get around the laws as such as as within it um but uh so most of my research has a lot of it's been through surveys just uh, merely just kind of asking people you know what drugs they've taken what kind of experiences they've had I've also conducted uh, field research, which I'm currently also doing. Most of it previously was in uh, South America, where these substances are kind of uh, widely and openly and uh, legally used, and also in uh, Central America as well. But also currently, I'm doing field research with DMT, with with psychonauts, but uh, in a way in which um, we protect, protect their identity and anonymity, etc., So that we're not putting anybody at risk, but also I've had the opportunity to collaborate with other researchers who are administering uh, psychedelics within laboratory and also hospital settings, primarily with uh, LSD. So uh, a bit of a mixed bag, really, but always within the confines of uh, the legal framework. Uh, So it is possible to do this. It's just you have to be a bit more um, ingenious about how you go about collecting this data.
0: Yeah, I I know that I personally feel like I should be fairly cautious about discussing any experiences that I might have had with psychedelics. And so I wonder how you approach having an open public conversation about maybe your own experiences, given the laws exist as they do. Is that a bit of a minefield? Uh, but potentially,
1: uh, I, I don't have too much concern about it. I mean, I've taken various psychedelics in the course of my research Um I've I've been a, a a test subject in in various other psychedelic research as well. So, you know, I've been injected with DMT and psilocybin and MDMA in the laboratory and uh, I've partaken of uh, numerous psychedelics in in central and south America with uh typically with indigenous people but also with uh, churches and so on and so forth. So, uh I mean, I have enough uh, kind of uh, experiences personally within the kind of legal frame uh, that I I don't really have to worry too much about feeling I have to justify my actions particularly.
0: Fair enough yeah I know uh, you know psychedelics have got quite a complicated history with the war on drugs and the antics of Timothy Leary in the 60s but and maybe this sounds a bit conspiratorial but I do sometimes wonder if an additional factor for why psychedelics are illegal is because they can lead to these dramatic shifts in perspective, which shine sometimes quite a critical light on our society in some ways and our collective behavior. And, you know, perhaps authorities of various kinds would rather we didn't do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if we look historically to what was happening in the States in the 60s, you know, there was a a, a kind of governmental and media hysteria in reaction to you know the the very sharp and uh, controversial and challenging rise of, of of the hippie movement, and not just that, but you know human potential movement in general, which was also aligned to a, a kind of more general counterculture, which was also associated with anti-war protesting and uh, black liberation movement, and so on and so forth. So it became a an easy way of of criminalizing sections of society who who maybe seem to be somewhat problematic for the government uh and i think you know the 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 reasons for criminalizing these drugs are not really well founded it it primarily primarily was cultural and historical prejudice rather than well-reasoned scientific evidence and we should have learned really from the the era of alcohol prohibition a few decades earlier in the states whereby prohibiting the use of alcohol just gave rise to various uh uh, you know mafias and 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 gangs and so on and so forth that took control of of the supply and demand of these uh, substances and uh you know when you make something prohibited you drive it underground and it is no longer a controlled substance despite the name of of of, <laughs> of the the law that governs it you know controlled substances act and so on that they, they become out of control they become uh subject to the black market so it you know, the, the reasons for it are historical, really. If you look at the evidence now, there doesn't seem to be much good reason to to maintain those kind of prohibitions. Uh, In my opinion, prohibition typically seems to cause more problems than it solves. And a lot of countries are now moving towards decriminalisation of of, uh, various substances, because it it just makes more kind of social and economic sense uh, as well. But I can, you know, I could spend all day talking about that, no doubt.
0: Yeah. I I do think that there is this important sense in which we're not truly free if the society that we're living in doesn't actually allow us to explore the space of our own minds in a peaceful way, even as adults. And, you know, especially since so much of what we are is our mind in a way. And, you know, I'm sure that's been said many times, but that to me does seem like an error. Um, so what do you think about that? Would a more advanced society, legalised psychedelics?
1: Yeah, I think, I, you know, if you got to look at this in the context, they've only been kind of illegal for like 50 odd years or something. I mean, and also the terminology here, the substances themselves aren't illegal, it's their use technically which is illegal. I just have to put that in there because a, a lawyer friend of mine keeps banging on about this all the time. Um, there you go, Daryl. Uh, but I think Yeah, I mean, it's about self-sovereignty and cognitive liberties, really. I think that's what it boils down to, that we we should have the right to decide what we ingest and what we put into our body and how we affect our mind and consciousness. Uh, I believe that's a kind of fundamental right, really. Um, Obviously, we have to kind of be cautious against uh, harms, you know, like uh, minors or children or people who are vulnerable and all the rest of it. But that, that becomes an issue uh, of education and uh, medicine really rather than than uh, a legal issue. Or at least there should be more room for the for the medical and educational kind of uh, dimensions of, of this discussion. It, it, they're kind of taken out of the whole equation uh, through the whole kind of prohibition uh, rhetoric, really. Uh, and, but I think things are slowly starting to change, in fact, quite quickly starting to change, you know, as you're probably aware of what's happening with cannabis in, in the States and the rest of the world are also decriminalising various substances at quite a rapid rate. Uh, we've also seen that uh, psilocybin has just received a fast track kind of uh, authorization for for potential licensing as a medicament based on the evidence coming out for its use in in treating depression so uh we could see decriminalization or uh, at least recategorization of a lot of these substances in the in the coming years um but uh yeah i mean uh, i think there's very good arguments for that as well if you treat it like, uh, perhaps, like even on the recreational front, you know, ignoring for a minute the kind of potential medical benefits of these substances, if if people wanted to take these things, you you could consider it like uh, a kind of dangerous sport. You know, we don't we don't criminalize dangerous sports, and yet people partake of them all the time. But then you wouldn't go out and just buy a hang glider and and jump off the uh, top of a cliff. You would, you know, you would join a club. You'd find out how, you know, get a license maybe to fly. Work out how to use it. You know, speak to people. You'd be kind of trained and shown how to kind of operate this thing in a in a relatively safe way. So that when you do begin to kind of just fly solo, you're 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 fully prepared to do that. Uh, so you know, there's no reason why we we couldn't have, you know, uh, psychedelic sports clubs, for instance. You know, but not necessarily sports. But you know, they could be for one's own personal exploration exploration. Um, so that model should equally apply, and in fact. You know, David Nutt, uh, who was the uh, drug czar in this country, was was basically sacked by the government for not uh, giving them the answers they wanted. Uh, and when he came out and said that actually ecstasy MDMA is uh, more is less dangerous than uh, equacy, which is what he referred to as uh, horse riding. Uh, so statistically, you know, the hours spent horse riding is is more dangerous than than hours spent taking MDMA. And yet we don't make horse riding illegal, right? Uh, so the, the, there's a certain amount of uh, hypocrisy and um, nonsensicality around drugs because they've the, the, the historically been this kind of issue of, of uh, that generates a lot of hysteria. Um, just to finish with a, a quote, I think it was Timothy Leary, although I'm not entirely sure, he says, uh, you know, psychedelics are these uh, extraordinary Substances which can cause hysteria in people who've never even taken them, uh, which is a a great line, I think.
0: Yeah, that was Timothy Leary, as far as I know. (laughs) So I've noticed in various places in your work and in your online lectures that you seem uh, quite open to the possibility that consciousness or mind in some way could be fundamental to reality, which is a view that I'm quite sympathetic with as well. Would you say for you that it is the psychedelic experience itself that leads you to this? Or are there other philosophical reasons, for example, which point in this direction for you? Um, Yeah, I mean, I come at it kind of both experientially
1: and kind of intellectually, academically. I'm not hugely well versed in, in philosophy of mind. I mean, I'm a bit of a dabbler. But uh, I find uh, materialism or materialist reductionism, physicalism, those kind of explanations of uh, ontology, the nature of reality and the mind-body problem, uh, somewhat unsatisfactory. I think uh, idealism, which you're talking about, or perhaps even dualism, are also somewhat unsatisfactory in that there is no one good explanation of the relationship between mind and body as i can see it so i try to remain agnostic uh, which is i think is a stance that you know scientists would would do well to 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 practice you know the the, the whole endeavor of science is supposed to be open minded and yet it comes front loaded with so many assumptions and and priors and actual beliefs that it it operates in a way which which just kind of bootstraps itself by uh just supporting the mainstream perspective of of materialist reductionism and yet i think there's a lot of evidence which would run counter to that which which kind of suggests that uh, consciousness can extend beyond the brain uh, and i don't just mean the human nervous system or the gut or whatever you know but beyond the actual physical body uh, and i think we need to take that evidence seriously and view the data kind of impartially and agnostically I don't have a particular philosophical position. I'm also sympathetic to idealism, possible dualism, or even uh, materialism to some extent, but I I don't find any of those kind of approaches satisfactory particularly. I think the problems with dualism and and, uh, idealism is they, they don't have very good theoretical basis, but the data certainly is somewhat supportive of them, whereas with materialism... Most of the data fits materialism, but a lot of it is anomalous to it. Uh, but it does have, uh, you know, a better kind of theoretical kind of stronghold on on the situation. You know, it's easy to explain everything in terms of materialism as so long as you reject all all the evidence which uh, contradicts it. You know,
0: <laughs> including the existence of consciousness.
1: <laughs> yeah, including the existence of consciousness by by some definitions. Yes, indeed. Uh, which you know is clearly. Very unsatisfactory so uh, I don't know if we'll ever will fully understand consciousness maybe our own consciousness isn't isn't kind of advanced enough to be capable to understand itself um, which is a kind of mysterianism kind of perspective which I have some sympathy with as well you know um, but certainly the, the current mainstream thinking on thinking is uh, inadequate I would say
0: mm-hmm. I think one of the issues is that Uh, there's a lot of scientists out there that aren't necessarily aware that there are actually these quite plausible philosophical arguments for panpsychism, for example, or views in which mind could be intrinsic to the universe. All of that tends to get lumped in with sort of the new age or loosely thinking sort of frames. And yet there are quite serious philosophers who think actually this is the most plausible explanation for the mind-body question is that, yeah, perhaps consciousness or interiority is is fundamental in some way and um but relating this back to uh, psychedelics and um one of the things that is uh, baffling about psychedelics is that there seems to be so much uh, going on in the mind and yet as you know brain imaging seems to show quite surprisingly that the brain itself under these states seems to be uh, in large part, or in a general way, quieter than usual. And this does seem to be at least somewhat consistent with the reducing valve view of the brain and the idea that the brain is more like a receiver of consciousness rather than the uh, generator of it. And I know that you've mentioned that. Can you talk about this a bit?
1: Yeah, I think on the surface of it, at least, I mean, Huxley's uh, notion of the, the brain as a reducing valve you know, he, he put this idea out there in, in the 1950s and it, it borrowed heavily from the, the thinking of Henri Bergson, the French philosopher, that, you know, the, the brain is not so much a, a producer of consciousness, rather a a, a filter of it as uh, kind of it's this kind of filter theory of, of consciousness. And uh, his ideas, you know, didn't really go much further than that. Uh, they're never really kind of put to the test he certainly applied psychedelics to that he said you know psychedelics are able to turn off this this filter mechanism of the brain right. so thereby uh you, you you turn off the reducing valve will turn it down and your your mind becomes flooded with this kind of wealth of of conscious experience of you know cosmic consciousness or mystical or psychical states of of, of being um and that wasn't really kind of put to the test particularly, uh, but then there was this uh, interesting evidence, uh, perhaps you could interpret it in that context, which came out in 2012 from the lab here in London, that um, they found that actually, counter to what everybody had probably predicted would happen when they, they did some brain imaging of people on uh, psilocybin, they found There was no increase in brain activity anywhere in the brain, in fact, and there was kind of significant reductions in this area of called the default mode network, which they kind of linked somewhat to your kind of uh, ego control mechanism, if you like. Uh, Now, it's a bit more complex than that. And I think that I think that certainly revived interest in, in this kind of filter theory and Huxley's notions of what happens under the influence of psychedelics. But the actual image is uh the actual picture is more complex than that because what also happens in the brain, although there's no increase in activity, there are increases in connectivity so the the brain is quieter but it's also more diffuse there's a greater amount of uh what my colleagues might call entropy which i I think is a kind of a somewhat freighted term <laughs> based on the implications uh there is there is more kind of uh or even chaotic interactions in the brain. It it basically it switches the brain from operating under its normal constraints to working in a more unconstrained way and having communication between disparate parts of the brain so that you know it it could be argued either way i think uh, my neuroscientific colleagues would say oh it's it's the kind of experiences are more due to this uh, hyper connectivity in the brain rather than the actual generalized brain reductions in activity so I think uh, the the jury's still out uh, and it's it's early days but I think there's some interesting things going on. What is so fascinating is that when we genuinely start to look at psychedelics from a kind of psychological and neurobiological perspective, we're kind of forced to actively engage with some of the bizarre phenomena that occurs in these states like experiences of of shared consciousness or precognition or psi experiences encounters with other sentient beings and so on and so forth, which deserve genuine attention, you know.
0: Definitely. And I do want to uh, get into that uh, shortly, but just to finish this comment on the uh, default mode network and that being lower in activity, I mean, <laughs> what I do know of the default mode network in the brain, which is admittedly not a lot, but that it is quite closely associated with our sense of ego or our sense of being an embodied self. And so I could imagine that if activity there is inhibited, then an apparent transpersonal experience could occur as a result of that region no longer acting as this kind of partition between our usual bodily sense of self and everything else in our field of experience. And so essentially opening us up to identifying self with everything and so you could imagine potentially if activity went down in this area and perhaps that would lead to a a much greater apparent content of consciousness even if the overall brain activity is lowered. Is, Is that an explanation that could be plausible?
1: Yeah, I think that's very plausible, and I think I think it it's still very uh, much open debate, you know. And I think it it fits uh, a kind of transpersonal understanding of the nature of consciousness as as much as it baffles and and uh, drives neuroscientists to try and interpret and understand the data. I think it's too early to say, but I think there's certainly it, it was intriguing, and I think uh, somewhat exciting that uh, the you know the first kind of uh, real data on this seem to suggest a reduction of activity generally speaking wh- you know which very much ties in with what huxley said he he was certainly correct in in one aspect uh, had there been an increase in brain activity as everyone had predicted then we could just ignore huxley's off the you know from the get go but i think it it gives us the opportunity to kind of explore these more transpersonal notions of uh, consciousness with the brain data i mean we we find similar things as well with um People in other states, so with find the same kind of uh, pattern of activity with meditation, uh with ayahuasca as well, uh with the deep states of hypnosis and even with um mediums, uh, so people, psychographers, experienced psychographers, these are people who go into a trance and then they uh they just let their hand with a pen just write freely and they supposedly kind of um write whole tracts of of uh, you know, even whole books, uh, supposedly authored by uh people who were dead. Uh this is a kind of very common practice in Brazil. And when they put inexperienced and experienced psychographers in uh, the fMRI, they found that you know the inexperienced psychographers tended to have an increase in brain activity consistent with kind of, you know, trying to do something whereas the uh the experienced psychographers had this whole reduction in the default mode network uh you know suggesting that their kind of ego activity of the brain was was kind of tuned down as as consistent with you know going into a trance state so that you know the data is consistent with with kind of transpersonal uh considerations of the data as well but i wouldn't say it's conclusive
0: yeah let me ask you this why uh, why do you think it is that psychedelics uh, experiences make deeper views of consciousness such as idealism and panpsychism? And maybe even animism seem so much more plausible to the experiencer. Well, I
1: mean, if you look at the kind of psychology of of belief, uh, the the biggest driver of of belief is usually experience. Okay, you know, you can uh, especially like in the fel- field of of parapsychology, you know, which we I work in. No amount of data typically convinces many people. People have their their beliefs, and and they're they're very much kind of stick to them and they'll just you know selectively filter whatever information fits or doesn't fit their their existing beliefs however experience uh, seems to be the largest driver of belief so you know people who tend to have anomalous or transpersonal experiences that will shift their worldview if they if they you know have a worldview prior to that that which doesn't it doesn't fit in um so there's some recent data coming out of john hopkins and they've found that you know dmt changed the kind of belief system even of atheists a substantial percentage not the whole lot but just you know taking dmt a, a large number of atheists stopped being atheists after their dmt experience because experience drives our, our beliefs really you know if we have cognitive dissonance between what we're told we're meant to believe and uh, our experience of of reality or of consciousness, or um, and uh, typically people may wrestle with those experiences and and ultimately may be baffled or agnostic or or come out with a with a more spiritually orientated worldview or panpsychic or animistic or whatever. So I think psychedelics have a, a great capacity for for shifting worldviews, for changing perspectives through the experience, not necessarily through the brain imaging data. Or any amount of experiments that are conducted, uh, because our experience is is our reality, uh, ultimately.
0: Yeah, and uh, just relating this slightly back to the default mode network, I think if there, you know, activity in the default mode network is going down, and so our sense of ego is dissolved in a way, and yet the brain is still clearly conscious in these states and in these very unique and novel ways then that sense of a very profound consciousness without any discernible self could be, you know, lead to experiences of universal consciousness and oneness, which may not be connected directly to the truth of that statement. And yet it provides a perspective in which that could be true.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's a lot of kind of argument and discussion at the moment about kind of Uh, ego dissolution and uh, what what that actually means, what do we mean by ego and and what do we mean by ego dissolution and so on and so forth, particularly in the the psychedelic research arena because uh, it means different things to different people. Uh, But certainly, you know, experiences of unity, consciousness and uh, encounters with an other, you know, which people perceive to be sentient uh, or real or... Uh, you know uh, transpersonal experiences whereby a profound connection to nature or telepathic experiences with other people those kind of experiences which yeah certainly could be driven by reductions in default mode activity are, are quite paramount and uh, regardless of how we define ego and ego dissolution which is you know kind of a highly debatable subject right now
0: yeah for me Uh, just there is this intuition that given that i think that there is a good chance that consciousness is fundamental to reality in some way based on philosophical convictions that i have and and if that's the case then you know it does seem perhaps more reasonable to consider that through direct contemplation on the nature of consciousness there could be potential sources for information about the deep structure of reality in some way and so perhaps this contemplative inner approach is kind of what's missing from materialism in a way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's taken a kind of very black box approach to the nature of of uh, experience, <laughs> um, uh, w- which is, is, is somewhat kind of limiting. Yeah, I think it would behoove scientists and neuroscientists and researchers of consciousness to be more experiential to study and practice, you know, Buddhism, or yoga, or uh, or lucid dreaming, all of these kinds of things, to at least uh, begin to kind of verify supposedly what their 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 positions are. You know, from a first person perspective, um, you know, it's an intriguing thing. Our, our kind of experiences is, is our reality, as I said, and and uh, but we, we also it, it's driven by our beliefs and our perceptions so uh if we have certain prior beliefs that you know mind is is actually just brain or the brain produces consciousness or brains just or consciousness is just a kind of epiphenomena or uh, illusion even our belief system is going to kind of constrain the kind of perceptions that we can have that would offer evidence to the contrary whereby if you you take a first person perspective be a bit more Agnostic, uh, and and see what actually arises, and uh, look at it. Look at the issue from both the inside and the outside. You you may give you some more challenging perspectives on on the nature of consciousness and reality. Uh, So we need to keep an open mind, but not so much our our brains fall out.
0: Right. I wanted to ask you uh, what your thoughts about the idea that psychedelics played a role in human evolution or uh, the evolution of our minds in some way. Are you open to that view?
1: Yeah I, th- I think it's worth considering certainly. Uh, I mean this kind of backs to Terence McKenna's you know stoned ape theory where you know he, he put forward this idea that uh, our ancient ancestors on the savannas of Africa probably looking for foodstuffs stumbled across mushrooms you know magic mushrooms and and consumed them and uh had a kind of leap in in their kind of conscious experience which which drove their kind of uh evolution of their brain and mind perhaps through some kind of synesthesia experience whereby in a pre-linguistic human ancestor they may not have had the capacity to name things and then you know perhaps you have an experience of synesthesia and uh sounds become visual objects which happens very commonly in fact on psychedelics have done some research on that so you know you, you may see sounds may take the shape of a of a rock or something and therefore you know ugh, may look like a rock and therefore we got a name for for a rock from that point on that's one extrapolation of it but it's all very interesting i don't think there's it's hard to put kind of evidence under that exotic uh, hypothesis really because we, we can't know what was going on in the minds and consciousness of our ancestors. There's potentially some evidence from uh, the rock art. There's a theory by Lewis Williams and Dowson who suggested that all Upper Paleolithic rock art, it has what we call entoptics, these geometric patterns and motifs which recur the world over in, in Upper Paleolithic rock art. And these, these motifs are, are indicative of altered states of consciousness, um, so it's that we see these entoptics a lot in altered states, particularly with psychedelics, but also in in some people, in in even in just dark spaces or through uh, chanting or meditation, hypnosis, we, we or hypnagogia. We, we see these geometric patterns, which which recur in the fir- in the very earliest human artwork. So there's potentially some argument there to suggest, well, this is some kind of evidence that this cultural shift we see, or this kind of the first evidence of of human culture, as such through art, is is somehow linked to the nature of going into altered states. I would say there's better evidence though, potentially, and that is when we look at all the kind of innovations and discoveries and inventions and so on and so forth that have come about through triggers in altered states of consciousness. So, like uh, the history of, uh, of of dreams, for instance, we see several Nobel prizes. Uh, whereby the uh, the insight which which drove the theory or discovery came through a dream you know einstein 's theory of relativity uh came through a dream niels bohr 's construction of the the atom uh, came through a dream the guy i can 't remember his name who discovered electrical conductance in nerves with frogs legs came through a dream uh, the invention of the the sewing machine needle came through a dream uh, and so on and so forth you know august Kekule's discovery of of the benzene ring came through a dream Uh, mendeleev's discovery of the uh, periodic table which preceded uh, Kekule's discovery of the benzene came through a dream and then we can see a continuity of those innovations and discoveries through uh, psychedelics as well so uh, it's suggested that um, uh, francis crick uh, had his dna double helix structure discovery through the consumption of lsd Now we don't know if that's true because the story came after he died we do know he did love lsd i have that on on good authority from a colleague of his He was involved in this organization called soma which was about um, uh, more sensible policies around uh, drugs uh, and psychedelics and he also put on masked balls apparently at his house with bowls of lsd punch at the door so that was a bit of a giveaway. So, But whether or not he took it in 1953, we don't know. But we do know people like uh, Carrie Mullis, for instance, who also won a Nobel Prize for uh, genetic discovery, in this case PCR, polymerase chain reaction. That came to him through his use of LSD, and we have him on record saying that. So th- there's a litany of, of discoveries, particularly in you know, chemistry and physics and inventions and innovations and so on, coming through altered states of consciousness. So that would suggest that these are good uh, cultural drivers. You know, they're 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 good drivers of innovation, no doubt related to the fact that they do give you this um, what we might call in psychology diversive thinking. You know, so you 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 kind of have greater associations of, of of novel thoughts, and and you know you can piece things together in in new ways, which you may not have thought about pr- prior to being in that state of consciousness. I was actually uh, involved in running a a clinical drug trial with LSD with uh, top level scientists, with a view to looking at their creative problem solving insights. I can't tell you anything about the, the results of that because they're still embargoed. Uh, other than I, I think they all thought they got some good insights out of it. I can't tell you anything about the actual specific quantitative results, however. So I think you know the psychedelics and all altered states are drivers of. Creative problem solving, which are drivers of at least cultural innovation and and uh, cultural growth, rather than necessarily physical physiological uh, evolution. Uh, but at the current time in history, you know we, our our cultural evolution has, has far surpassed our physical evolution, uh, so that it's becoming increasingly more important, perhaps whether or not they actually. Uh, drove physiological evolution in, in in our ancient past, they're certainly driving cultural evolution now. Uh just to give you some more examples, Silicon Valley, home computing industry, uh it's it's well attested that the home computing industry was was largely fueled by the use of psychedelics. Steve Jobs, creator of Apple, said it was one of the most two or three important things he did was taking LSD. Bill Gates also took LSD. However, Steve Jobs said he didn't take enough or his products would be more interesting. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there's a good book called What the Dormouse Said, uh, which uh, documents the use of psychedelics in, in the, the start of the home computer industry. And we also see innovations in physics as well. The fundamental physics groups were a bunch of out-of-work physics postdocs who took up theoretical physics because they couldn't get grants to do lab work. And they're also taking huge quantities of psychedelics and experimenting with parapsychology. And they developed um, uh, quantum cryptography, which is now a multi-billion dollar industry. So that came out of physicists taking acid.
0: I, I read a book about those guys once, uh, how the hippies saved physics.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that one and what the dormouse said are um, good insights into some of the less obvious cultural drivers. We know about the influences of on music and fashion and so on but less so perhaps about the kind of scientific innovations
0: yeah and uh, you you mentioned uh, that dreams have historically been a source of a lot of inspiration and I certainly have the sense not so much in dreams but I'll wake up with the answer to some question that I've been trying to figure out and so maybe I did have a dream but I forgot it yeah and there does seem to be this connection between the psychedelic state and dreams. They're kind of like dreaming awake in a way to simplify the experience. Relating this back to evolution and perturbing our minds through psychedelics, I mean, that does seem to me to be fairly plausible, although difficult to, to prove. But on the other hand, there is this other side of this idea that sometimes people talk about, which I think is also interesting. And it's the idea that these plants and mushrooms themselves actually evolved to contain these compounds in order to essentially communicate these experiences to us. And so that when we consume them, it leads to us being more um, ecologically aware of our environment, which is, of course, of benefit to the plants. And so it's kind of a bit of an out there idea, but essentially is that there is an intelligent communication occurring on some level between our species and these plants or the rest of nature in a way. And it's a fascinating idea, and yet it does seem to be much less likely to be scientifically verifiable. But perhaps not, I don't know, maybe you uh, take a different view on this.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the mainstream and materialistic scientific endeavours has, has been very much against the notion of consciousness existing beyond human beings, you know, for a long time. There was a recent committee at Cambridge University which decreed that actually no, some mammals may be conscious, but you know, generally, the materialist reductionist kind of scientific endeavor is is not really uh, favorable to the idea that there is any kind of intelligence anywhere in nature. Although there's a huge body of research now happening, demonstrating uh, intelligence in, in plants, that they have memory, that they can problem solve and and so on and so forth, this can't really be ignored. I don't think, so it's first of all, we have to kind of yeah establish the evidence that plants can act intelligently, and then if we look a little bit more into the nature of these um usually kind of plant alkaloids that are psychedelic uh, on occasion we have diterpenoids and things like that as well uh that these these kind of the, the kind of typical classic psychedelic alkaloids we find in plants are very, very old. They predate humans by a long, long way. They're not quite kind of a, a, a essential building blocks of life. They're what we call secondary compounds. So they've, they've historically been around for an extremely long time. And the way in which, certainly kind of communicating with my friends who are botanists, understand these uh, these secondary compounds is that plants use them as tools of communication, either internally, as in a kind of neurotransmitter or neuromodulatory way. Well, we can't talk about neurons in in plants, but they, you know, plants make use for internal communications through through these compounds, you know, like serotonin and so on. Uh, and also, they use them for external communication with the world outside to communicate and manipulate the exterior world. For instance, there are substances in in tomatoes. Whereby they'll sample if they're getting attacked by an aphid, they'll sample the the, the saliva of the aphid and are ident- able to identify the specific species, and then they'll release chemical pheromones to attract the specific predator for that specific species of uh, predator for themselves. So you know they, they use these things to communicate externally for their own benefit. And so psychedelics fall into that category of substances that plants uh, make use of. So, And it may be that they've they've evolved to work in various ways. There was recently, um, was it a kind of fungus? I can't remember what it is. Some kind of uh, psilocybin was found in this fungus which which takes control of, uh, of an ant.
0: I think it's cordyceps.
1: Cordyceps, that's it, yeah. Um, for its own purposes. So, you know, they may be used as uh, mind control agents for insects or for repelling insects in certain circumstances, but they may also have evolved for direct communication uh, with uh, other species like uh, mammals and humans uh, in some way. And I think it's, all right, What what is the purpose of that for their benefit? Th- that's a big question mark against that. I mean, if you look at kind of people's reports, you know, people like Paul Stamets, is Probably one of the world's leading mycologists, he would argue that psilocybin mushrooms use psilocybin directly to communicate with us and and say, "Come on, wake up, you monkeys you're you're wrecking the place. Just kind of you're going to ruin it for everyone. you've got to just you're part of an ecology of consciousness, and uh, you've got to just stop this crazy ecocide." you know so he says they're they're using it on a really communicative level. Obviously, that takes us into a kind of animistic realm, um, but I, I don't think we should readily dismiss that just because it doesn't fit with some kind of constricted worldview where that kind of stuff doesn't happen. You know, uh, that's not a good reason to to kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater. Really, I think we should uh, approach these things open-mindedly. You know, we genuinely are in some kind of ecological crisis, and uh, you know, psychedelics do seemingly. Uh, on face value, communicate with us and 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 alert us to those kind of issues and, and make us more uh, ecologically orientated. Uh, I've done some research of the survey and found that you know psychedelics were great drivers of uh, eco consciousness. Uh, I found that 100 people, 100% of people in my survey said they felt more connected to nature from their psychedelic experiences. Most of them were also more concerned because of their psychedelic experiences. It also kind of reflected in their behavioral changes. So, the majority of people said they had changed their diet as a result of their psychedelic experiences, you know, to be more vegan or local or vegetarian or whatever, uh, or organic. Over 50%, the majority had also said they'd increased the amount of gardening they do as a result of taking psychedelics, you know. So, <laughs> and even uh, a small percentage, like 16%, changed their careers to one that was more ecologically orientated. Uh, to give an example, two people gave up what they were doing and took up PhDs in botany specifically because they'd tripped once and they were like, Oh my god, we've got to do something about this, you know. So, I think they are the evidence would suggest, at least, uh, whether or not we maintain an animist perspective on these things, that um, they, they do change attitudes and behavior in a more kind of biospheric way, you know, towards the whole kind of planet, not just to the specific species that are kind of making us trip uh but also those you know certainly the existence of psilocybin containing mushrooms is probably rapidly developed you know as as a consequence of them being psychedelic you know there's people growing them in their droves
0: it's serving them quite well isn't it
1: <laughs> yes yeah, serving them pretty well i would say um whatever the nature of uh animism or not but, you know, I, th- I think we should keep an open mind to those kind of interpretations as well.
0: Yeah. So let's move on slightly to um, these sort of transpersonal dimensions of psychedelics, which I know that you're very interested in. And so psychedelic states definitely seem to have these transpersonal aspects which extend beyond the individual. And of course, there's a lot of debate about what psychedelics might reveal, if anything, about reality. Uh, But you suggested that we could potentially test these apparent extended mind aspects of psychedelic states essentially through psi experiments, such as looking for evidence of telepathy or precognition. And I know that you've actually done some of your own research in this area, and I'd really love to get into what you found out. But let me start out by asking you why it is that you think that psi and other parapsychological phenomena like this could have some scientific merit. What would you say to someone, maybe a scientist, who wasn't at all aware that there was any legitimate scientific research in this area to, to base this on?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, there was a brilliant article recently uh, in the uh, is it American Psychologist, kind of the, the flagship kind of magazine journal of the American Psychological Association. Last year, by a colleague of mine, Professor Etzo Cardenia, and uh, he basically just gave a, a really nice overview of the state of the art in parapsychology. And, you know, there's, there's, there's 10 distinct research paradigms which the meta-analyses all show that there are highly significant positive effects indicating that psi is a genuine phenomena. And that constitutes hundreds and hundreds of, of individual research studies, all kind of collated and meta-analysed and so on. So, you know, look at the data, first of all. I think we've got to the point where there is kind of a substantial body of data, which seems to indicate that psi is a genuine phenomenon. Genuine, I say, but albeit very uh, weak. Uh, The effect sizes are not huge. These are kind of quite small effect sizes. But when you do enough research, they appear to be quite robust. Obviously, individual experiments don't always return positive results, but across the whole scheme of things you get very good trends which are significant Uh, and it also shows that size is is seemingly largely an unconscious phenomena as well so it happens it's a subtle process not least in its effects but also in the level of awareness we have of it so most people we may all be kind of have psychic capacities but uh, we're not really consciously aware of that most of the time and that's why uh, some of the biggest effects come through altered states of consciousness so people in dreams or meditative states and so on and so forth seem to be more receptive perhaps because this information is is typically mediated cognitively through the unconscious processes so there's a sense in which altered states of consciousness give us access to this unconscious material this more kind of symbolic and non-linear associative kind of material that we see in dreams wherein the message Uh, somehow the information transfer of psi makes itself apparent. So alt-states are a good starting block to explore this, and I think we do have good evidence to suggest that it should be taken seriously.
0: Right, and psi here essentially meaning telepathy, for example, precognition, maybe mind-matter interaction, although I realise that's more controversial. Uh, But essentially psi being an umbrella term for... Maybe five different sensitivities that have been identified that humans apparently have. And you mentioned that the uh, effect sizes are very small, but of course, you know, small effects can have huge implications, especially if they don't, if they fundamentally don't fit with our view of reality. And so I think if psi is real and our minds do, in a sense, uh, extend beyond our bodies, then it is very natural to think that psychedelics would amplify these kinds of phenomena, especially given how profoundly transpersonal these experiences seem to be and how much of the unconscious seems to be unveiled. So, is there much history of using psychedelics to study psi? Uh,
1: to some extent, I mean, I'll say just to, to put some data under that hypothesis that, you know, psychedelics seem to induce these experiences more. Uh you can see, like from survey research myself and others have conducted that you know people do report a lot of these experiences under the influence of psychedelics, you know so something like fifty percent of my sample who uh, had taken psychedelics said they'd had an experience of telepathy while under the influence, and you don 't really see that on non psychedelic drugs you know uh something like two percent of the people. <laughs> It, on on non-psychedelic drugs had an experience of of uh telepathy under the experience and under, under the influence so there's something specific about psychedelics which is probably this access to the unconscious material which at least drives the experience of 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 psi now we don't know uh for certain though those experiences are genuine of course until we do some experimental research and we can rule out alternative explanations and that's uh that's where we uh, need to do more research, basically. I mean, there the, there were a number of experiments conducted, mostly in the 50s and 60s. So some by parapsychologists uh, experimenting with psychedelics and some by psychedelic researchers dabbling in, in parapsychology. And the, there was a lot of overlap in these two fields of research back in the 1960s and then of course prohibition came along and uh two dis- different areas of research were, were 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 kind of suitably kind of put off by prohibition that neither of them wanted to be seen to be tarnishing their reputation by researching the other field you know so you know parapsychologists and psychological researchers kind of went their separate ways when prohibition occurred in the late 60s uh, and It hasn't really kind of been reunited since so it's fair to say i'm probably one of the only researchers currently who's actually looking at kind of parapsychological phenomena with psychedelics and so there's a huge hiatus in in research that's been done the research that was done in the 60s uh unfortunately the scientific kind of standards of uh, of methodology in those days wasn't particularly rigorous so although they they showed some promising results uh, it's not really very evidential because, you know, they didn't have control conditions uh, in a lot of cases. They didn't have placebos, which is problematic anyway in psychedelic research. Uh, so they didn't have any kind of benchmarks to gaze them against. The kind of, sometimes they didn't have use of statistics and so on and so forth. So that early research isn't really evidential. Uh, and so I've been kind of forced to conduct my own experiments uh, to try and address this question. Forced to.
0: <laughs> yeah so I yeah I understand that you have done some uh, research looking at psi and psychedelic states and uh, yeah I understand that the uh, the first experiments didn't go exactly as you had initially planned would that be fair to say
1: Yeah there's no such thing as a, a as a failed experiment really uh because you learn something from doing it that's the point of experimentation uh and I learned that my methodology wasn't really suitable to to the task uh so I initially started off by doing um uh, precognition experiments with people in ayahuasca ceremonies, uh, and actually found that uh, people's precognition scores dropped uh, when they were under the influence of of uh, ayahuasca or shortly afterwards. Um,
0: Maybe a bit distracted.
1: <laughs> well, not so much that there was a control condition as well, and the scores also dropped in the control condition, which tells you you've got an order effect and that. Um, there's something wrong with your methodology, basically. So it's not that, oh, this is evidence that people aren't precognitive under the influence of ayahuasca. It's just that the methodology isn't clearly suitable. And there's various reasons for that. I won't go into the technical details. but uh, So I adapted my methodology uh, to one more conducive, I think, to this kind of research and uh, tried to replicate or try to kind of continue the research, but this time with uh, San Pedro cactus. Which is a mescaline-containing cactus from South America. Uh, in the end, I was attempting to again recruit twenty people to the experimental condition and have them do a trial each. Uh, that wasn't feasible in the in the time I had traveling around uh, Ecuador, largely because it was like a wild goose chase trying to find shamans who would who would let you kind of do this kind of research in their ceremonies. And I ended up just doing a self-experimentation instead because I had all the protocol. Uh, and I did all 20 trials myself and under you know very well-controlled conditions came up with nice, significant results. So obviously I don't think this is hugely evidential because this is just one person and one experiment, but it is kind of proof of process that this methodology has some utility. I've uh, since done the experiment again with uh, people under the influence of LSD Uh, I can't really say anything about that particularly because uh, again I haven't published the paper, well I can say that I I got a significant result in the opposite direction which was uh, intriguing and baffling in equal measure Uh, (laughs) which seems to suggest that it's not like there's no evidence of psi, there is evidence of psi but it's a kind of evidence of a psi blocking if you like and that's because I think uh, my participant pool were scientists who weren't particularly open to the notion of psi. So I didn't take a measure, unfortunately, of their, their beliefs.
0: bit of a sheep goat effect.
1: Exactly. So uh, we do know from previous research that the sheep goat effect, where you know, believers tend to score well in psi tests and, and non believers actually don't, it's not like they don't score well, is it? They tend to score in the opposite direction. Um, but I was using kind of very materialist scientists, and they managed to get a significant missing score, which was, you know, quite unlikely, uh, you know, statistically, just like from random chance. I think it's probably a genuine effect, which shows that they were they were applying their unconscious processes, perhaps, to to not get a good score in the task. <laughs> Um, right. So, you know, scientists are not good participants for this kind of research. <laughs> that's that's conclusion from that. And I'm now attempting to do some further experiments with people, psychonauts this time, uh, under the influence of DMT. But I haven't got all the data in yet, so I can't say any further than that.
0: And uh, I, I'm keen to get into your DMT research, but just to, one question arises for me on this. when When you do see, or if you do see, Uh, positive psi effects during a psychedelic psi experiment how do you differentiate this psi effect in psychedelics from what might be people's innate psi abilities assuming that we have them
1: that's a good question so it this is problematic as well and and this also kind of somewhat identifies the uh the psi psychedelic research avenue as, as as somewhat um, redundant in, in effect, anyway, because we know from the evidence, or at least what the evidence seems to suggest, is that you know people can be psychic in in various states of consciousness. Anyway, uh, we seem to find you know association with altered states uh, tends to improve it. You know, belief seems to be a, a factor, and so on and so forth. But we've got enough evidence from people not on psychedelics that they can do well on on side tasks, right? As uh, as a group um so kind of asking well do we get these effects with psychedelics is kind of well we get them anyway right so so you kind of force to have a control group i have had some control conditions but it's very difficult to have truly blind conditions uh in in this context so i did a match pairs with the ayahuasca study uh i did a before and after with the lsd they scored a chance uh before lsd and significantly sign missing on LSD. And in my own self-experimentation, I, of course, did a, a control condition where I wasn't under the influence of mescaline. However, that's not a blind control because I knew I wasn't under the influence of mescaline, uh, and that was a, a chance. So it's it's very difficult to have a true uh, blinded condition in, in this context. I will say that the, the LSD subjects were blinded, but uh, it, it becomes apparent Fairly quickly, although not as quick as you'd think, uh, if you happen to be under the influence of a psychedelic. Actually, in our case, it, it, it took quite a while for for the participants to realize they were tripping, especially if they'd never taken psychedelics before. But you, it, it's very difficult to have a true blind condition, so that leads you to the alternative: is is that people are intentionally trying to do worse on the side task in the control condition, right? Uh, but that then also kind of calls into, into play, well, how can you intentionally be not psychic, right, uh, in, in a task which is is completely randomised, uh, <laughs> uh, which kind of suggests there is evidence of psi, uh, but we can't be certain to what degree the psychedelics are, are uh, instrumental in that. So it, it's slightly problematic, and I'm not sure how easily that problem will go away, but I think it's worth just getting some data down on this anyway.
0: Yeah, and like I said, I think that if Psy is a real phenomenon, then it, there is a strong intuition that the sort of transpersonal states of psychedelics should lead us in that direction. But I'm slightly conscious of the time ticking away, and I do want us to get into DMT. So I know that you focus uh, your research specifically on on DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which I understand is potentially the most powerful psychedelic that we know of. But apart from that, what is it to you that is distinctive and interesting about this molecule?
1: Well, I think the most interesting thing about DMT, apart from the intensity of the experience, which, you know, as I said earlier, can make atheists, non-atheists in, in 10 minutes, um, is, is that it's, it's naturally occurring, not just in, in various plants, but also in, uh, Pretty much all mammals, as far as we know, including humans. So here we have a, a psychedelic agent which is naturally occurring in the human body, um, and we don't know necessarily what the function of that is. Uh, although there's been a lot of speculation, or even where it's it's produced, for that matter. But it is potentially a, 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 a jigsaw piece in the puzzle of of uh, how spontaneous, mystical, and transpersonal experiences and parapsychological experiences arise it could be that you know uh, endogenous dmt that's made in the body could be part of the equation of how spontaneous experiences occur uh, and so that for me is is probably one of the, the main reasons for studying it but also and i think it's probably because it is endogenous it also has these extremely profound effects on people uh, i mean life-changing kind of uh, worldview changing um kind of atheist-changing effects.
0: So, as you know, one of the uh, very common experiences during psychedelics, and especially uh, DMT, though, are these very convincing encounters with apparent intelligences which seem to be originating from outside of us somehow. They seem very other to us, and yet I I know that you're open to the idea, among other possibilities, that these experiences could be legitimate encounters with other beings other uh, minds potentially inhabiting different frames of reality on some level so what is it that makes that a plausible idea for you well it's
1: something that um people tend to come away from the experience thinking you know people go into a dmt experience maybe not really knowing what to expect or maybe having read some stuff but you can't really prepare somebody for a dmt experience because it's beyond our our realm of understanding, you know, in in the ordinary state of consciousness. So people are genuinely kind of deeply surprised and and kind of somewhat awestruck by the intensity of the experience. And encounters with seemingly sentient other beings occurs pretty frequently at high doses. Um, and of course, one of the things about the DMT experience is it seems more real than waking reality. You know, you, if you had to kind of hedge your ontological bets on on which reality was more real most people would put it on the dmt experience uh and 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 hence it is kind of profoundly worldview changing capacities uh so the experience alone leads people to accept the experiences often at face value that they really did encounter otherworldly beings that exist in some other kind of uh disincarnate realm or some such um Aside from that, I mean, it, so we shouldn't necessarily just dismiss people's experiences because they're subjective, but also one of the other features is that there's a there's a often there's a high degree of of correspondence between people's experiences, perhaps even naively, uh, so that for instance there are certain characters which seem to pop up with alarming recurrency, like the little people, for instance. So you know the experience of encounters with dwarves, elves, pixies, gnomes, whatever you want to call them, little people, seems to to occur quite a lot. And we also know that these experiences were were relatively common pre the discovery of DMT, and people would spontaneously have encounters with little people, we know from folklore the world over. So um, that's an intriguing uh, uh, experience, as are some other kind of more obscure kind of characters, such as Praying Mantises, typically conducting, like usually huge praying mantises towering over the person, conducting kind of uh, brain surgery on people and, and kind of rearranging their kind of neural makeup. This is what people report. Uh, even people I've known naively uh, have had these experiences and then were astonished to discover, oh no, that happens quite a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, and then there, there are other kind of perhaps archetypal DMT Motifs as well that recur. So why is it? You know, how do we kind of understand this from a reductionist point of view? Why, why should so many people seemingly independently have an encounter with a kind of giant prey mantis doing kind of brain surgery on them? Is there some kind of you know node in the brain which is triggered by DMT which is specifically designed to induce these kinds of experiences? That seems very unlikely. One of the caveats, of course, is, though, that you can't ever have a a completely culturally unmediated experience. There's no such thing. So it's hard to know what kind of cultural influences or baggage or prior knowledge or memes a person brings to an experience like a DMT experience. You know, perhaps they were vaguely aware of uh, elves. You know, Uh, maybe that if they have read some Terence McKenna, for sure they knew about the elves. But some of the other characters are, are more obscure and still pop up with a, a high degree of recurrence when you might not necessarily expect that because there's not so much kind of cultural information out there about them. Ultimately, though, it's impossible to kind of pass the, the experience from people's cultural influences. So it's very difficult to, to kind of establish the genuine nature of these things merely from people's experiences alone even if they do have a high degree of similarity among seemingly independent experiences.
0: We certainly have dreams where we appear to interact with other intelligences. So what are the reasons to consider this, this might be different to that? Uh,
1: this is a good question, actually. I mean, I think it's something to do with the, the the astonishing nature of it and uh, the, the recurrence of, of particular... Uh, identities of of particular characters you know uh you know the, the occurrence of elves for instance in dreams is is probably fairly evenly distributed or fairly random you know uh the recurrence of of elves in dmt experiences is 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 extremely prolific um so that that's kind of good question mark there it's also people don't tend to wake up from dreams going oh my god that was more real than this real uh, so there's another kind of question mark there. And obviously there may be something inherent in DMT, which gives rise to that. But I think we should also try and approach this open-mindedly is it is ultimately a largely metaphysical question, but uh, I think there are ways in which we could attempt to approach this empirically as well. Uh, although it's not easy to get at. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, I mean, uh, Who's to say that dreams aren't also some uh they have a degree of their own internal reality too uh when people have shared dream experiences or precognitive dreams um which tend to occur more than you would expect by chance alone uh then how do we understand these and we even have kind of lab data to to back up with evidence for the genuine existence of of dream precognition or telepathy as well. Which seems to suggest a, a kind of extended mind um, model of of consciousness, uh, and yeah. so if you, if we at least uh, have as a working hypothesis the notion of an extended mind, then is it potentially feasible that people are having encounters with uh, other than themselves uh, in these in these experiences? It's a big open question.
0: Yeah, has there been? Um, much sort of mainstream research or attempts to explain explain this phenomenon of uh, encountering intelligent entities? For example, you know, is there any proposed brain-based story for what brings these experiences about? Because, I mean, just like the default mode network has this relatively specialized process for uh, sort of f- shaping our sense of self It seems plausible to me that there is like a a relatively specialized area in the brain which kind of flicks on when we're dealing with other intelligences. Because, you know, the, the moment that there are other intelligences in our vicinity, then we kind of have to shift gears to start anticipating what these other minds might be up to. And so, if a psychedelic is disrupting this intelligence identifier or intentionality projecting process, then it could create the perception of other intelligences trying to communicate with us and since our minds are already in this very open individualist perspective that psychedelics put us into you know maybe that is why the apparent messages that are coming from these entities have these very distinct overtones of oneness and connection and I, i realize that that doesn't explain some of the weirder experiences though
1: I mean, possibly not I think it's an interesting point you you kind of made there uh perhaps maybe not directly, but it's like if if people if there is a part of the brain which uh is somehow uh associated with um encounters with other you know like a, a communication part of the brain or identification of uh, of faces or other beings or something like that, which is activated during these encounters on d m t that doesn't necessarily solve. The, the the issue does it because as you said it could be that if you're having an, an encounter with some other being be it you know genuinely in the real world or in a DNT experience you would expect those part of the brain to be activated and there is research going on i'm collaborating with the team at imperial primarily chris timmerman who's working with DNT. so we're looking at brain imaging and dmt experiences uh but it still becomes a, either a neurotheological or a The neurological kind of debate right okay of course these parts of the brain are activated when you're having encounters uh but it's is it they're activated because you're having an encounter or are you having an encounter because this part of the brain is activated you see it's it becomes a bit of a chicken in the egg kind of debate really but uh, it's still useful data to kind of determine okay so what is actually happening in the brain when these encounter experiences uh, occur and Chris has just completed his uh, his first fMRI uh, scanning of people on DMT and asked them about their entity encounters. So we'll have some data on that soon, or he will at least. Uh, but then we're going to collaborate in the next few years, hopefully, on some uh, more kind of exotic questions as well. Uh, ultimately, how you interpret the data really depends on your prior position on what the experiences mean um so yeah let's let's see what data we come up with though anyway
0: okay david well we've exhausted all of our time that we have together but i think that the research that you're you're working on is really exciting and interesting and i'm sure that we could find things to talk about for much longer but before we wrap things up here where should people go if they want to find out more about your work and your ideas
1: um so i've got a few books out there the one from last year other worlds psychedelics and exceptional experience gives a good overview of of this kind of research area and more specifically to do with dmt and dmt entities we got a book out last year called dmt dialogues which has like uh, about 20 of the kind of world's major thinkers on this topic all come together to discuss dmt entities so uh, either of those books are a good resource or you can find me on academia.edu as well for all my papers.
0: Is, is there anything else that you have uh, coming up that you'd like people to know about? Uh, well, Breaking
1: Convention, of course. Uh, it's a conference that I co-organise at the University of Greenwich. It happens every two years. It's on again this year in August, 16th to the 18th of August. We have uh, over 150 speakers from around the world talking about psychedelic consciousness from every angle, you know, psychiatry, philosophy uh therapy you name it and um so yeah that's a great event um do come along and find out more breaking convention 16th the 18th of august
0: i'll make sure that there is a link to that in the description and i'll try and uh, make it there myself i'll put some links in uh, to the books as well
1: that'd be great please do uh, submit a paper and, and come and give a presentation that'd be great
0: maybe maybe well again david thanks so much for making time for me and having this conversation on uh, waking cosmos Uh, i hope we can do this again sometime
1: yeah it's been great thanks so much adrian
0: hey everyone i hope you enjoyed today's episode of waking cosmos exploring the mystery of consciousness and its place in reality remember that you can help keep the lights on here at waking cosmos by supporting us on patreon at patreon.com slash waking cosmos Okay, my friends, I will see you next time for more episodes exploring consciousness, reality, and life's place in the universe. I'm Adrian Nelson, until next time.